0: Story 3 of The Miss Cusack Mysteries by L. T. Mead and Robert Eustace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Terrible Railway Ride. The Story of the Man with the False Nose. One evening after dinner, Frank Kay, a young fellow in whom I had long taken a deep interest, called to see me. He was Lord Southborough's private secretary, and had been considered a very lucky man to secure so lucrative a post. I hope I am not disturbing you, Lonsdale, he said, but as I am passing through town on my way to Paris tonight, I thought I should like to see you. I am feeling rather hipped, he added, and the hotel is lonely. I just looked in on the chance of finding you at home. I am glad to see you, Frank, was my reply. Come and sit near the fire. It is a chilly night, is it not? By the way, old chap, I added, you do look seedy. Is anything wrong? He gave a slight sigh as he sank into one of my easy chairs he had lost flesh considerably since I had seen him last, and his fresh and ruddy complexion had left him. I am out of sorts, he answered, and a good deal worried. It is all my own stupid fault, of course. Then his face lightened a little, and he added, but all the same I have good news for you, Lonsdale. I am engaged to be married. I congratulate you, of course, I said. Who is the lucky girl? I think you must know something of her. Her name is Violet Fortescue, She was talked of a good deal for her beauty during the last season. She lives with her mother in Leicester Terrace, Bayswater. I think myself in great luck to have secured her. And what does Mrs. Fortescue say to the match was my next remark. Oh, as long as I keep my present post, she is willing to allow the sacrifice as she expresses it. Of course, I shall never be rich, Lonsdale, and Violet might have married anyone, but that is all right, continued Kay in a cheerful tone. If only I can make other matters straight, I expect to be married some time next year. What other matters do you allude to? I asked. I will tell you all about it, he said. He stared straight before him for a moment. All the sorrow and misery had returned to his face. Then he continued, speaking quickly. I am in a frightful mess. Never take a friend's advice about buying shares, Lonsdale. I did, and I have got myself into a pretty scrape. Silly, stupid fool that I am. On what I considered the best advice in the world, I spent a lot of money on some Rand diamond shares, which I was assured would go to double their value in a few months. The old story, they went down. I had to sell, and it has pretty nearly ruined me. Southborough heard of it, and naturally spoke to me very seriously. He said, as his secretary, he could not allow me to speculate in the wild way I was doing. He had every right to dismiss me, but, knowing of my engagement to Violet Fortescue was lenient, And overlooked my shortcomings for this time. The unfortunate part of it is that he thinks I am out of the wood, whereas I am not. I am in debt to a man in town, and he means to press me if I cannot pay up, and very shortly too. Well, well, I must hope for the best, and will quiet my creditor with a fairly good check when I get my salary at Christmas. I am now going to Paris on a mission of the greatest secrecy, importance, and responsibility. You certainly jeopardized your position when you went in for that big plunge. Was my reply, and I am sorry to hear that you are not clear yet. No, that is the real worry, but I cannot talk about it any more at present. How long do you stay in Paris? I shall be back the day after tomorrow, arriving in London after midnight, and shall sleep at the Fortescues. The next day I go down to Yorkshire, where Lord Southborough is staying. My mission to Paris is alone enough to make me a little anxious. However, I dare not breathe a word to anyone, not even to you. You are quite right. I said. I only trust everything will go well. Be sure you send me a line when your wedding day is fixed. I should like to introduce you to Violet Lonsdale. I am sure you would like her. I expect I should, I replied heartily. On the next day and the following one, I was specially busy, not getting home until quite late. During those hours of heavy work, I had little time to give Kay a thought. I had just gone to bed on the evening of the second day when, to my annoyance, I heard my night bell ring long and violently. I did not want to go out again, being somewhat tired, but of course there was no help for it. I quickly dressed and went down to the door. As I opened it, I saw to my astonishment a girl standing on the doorstep, and a cab stood at the curb. "'Are you Dr. Lonsdale?' she asked quickly. "'Yes. What is the matter?' I replied. "'Please let me come in for a moment to speak to you. My name is Fortescue, Violet Fortescue. Can you come at once to see Frank—I mean Mr. K?' a most terrible and inexplicable thing has happened what i said throwing open the door of my consulting room frank has just returned from paris something most mysterious happened to him in the train he was brought to our house half an hour ago by a policeman from victoria very ill scarcely conscious after the policeman left he partly recovered consciousness looked round him wildly declared that he had been robbed of some great valuables while in the train and then begged of me to fetch you immediately He says he must see you without a moment's delay. "'Of course I'll come immediately,' I answered. "'You can tell me more as we go.' I put into a bag a few things I thought I should require, and we started off. "'Have we far to go?' I asked. "'Only to Bayswater. We live in Leicester Terrace.' "'Do you suspect Mr. K. of having been drugged?' I asked. "'No one can tell. As soon as he recovered any degree of consciousness, he mentioned your name. He gave your address and begged someone to fetch you.' but when i left the house he was again in a queer sort of faint we soon stopped at the door of number twenty six leicester terrace which was instantly opened and we entered an elderly lady hurried from one of the doorways leading into the hall i am mrs fortescue she said are you dr lonsdale yes i replied then will you please come at once to see mr k he seems somewhat better now i found my young friend stretched on a sofa at the further end of a large room his face was white and his whole appearance ghastly he was breathing heavily and although a faint smile crossed his lips when he saw me i perceived that he was still under the influence of some narcotic what i could not possibly define are you in pain i asked my head aches otherwise i have no pain but please do not think about my health that is not of the slightest consequence what shall i do about the jewels the jewels i exclaimed yes i have been robbed of jewels of immense value What is to be done? Tell me all you can remember before you lost consciousness, I said. Where were you? In the train. I engaged a private carriage from Dover. I thought it would be safest as I was carrying such priceless gems. For some time I felt perfectly well. Then I began to grow sleepy. I struggled against the feeling, but it became overmastering, and I suppose I yielded to it. I remembered no more till I woke up again at Victoria with just enough sense to tell the police officer my name and address. The moment I had done this, I dozed off once more. "'Have you ever had a similar attack?' I asked. "'Never. Of course it was foul play, but how executed, heaven only knows. What will happen to me? I am a ruined man. I was bringing over Lady Southborough's jewels, worth I don't know what.' I examined him carefully, but could find no paralysis or indication whatever as to the cause of his extraordinary attack. "'Did you take anything on the boat or at Dover before starting in the train?' I asked nothing whatever i am a bad sailor and was ill crossing i had nothing since leaving the hotel in paris nor smoked at all i presume no i could not it is clear then that you were not drugged for your sickness crossing would have counteracted that i remarked do you feel better now i am nearly all right again has lord southborough been telegraphed to he is at his country place in yorkshire it is too late to wire to him to-night i answered you must keep yourself quiet Kay, where you are "'Don't worry, I will see to everything.' I wrote a prescription, and, enjoining perfect quiet, left him. Whatever had happened during his brief journey from Dover to London, the danger for the present was over. I went into the next room, where Mrs. and Miss Fortescue were waiting to receive me. They both came up eagerly as I appeared. "'What do you think of it all, Dr. Lonsdale?' asked the mother. "'I do not know what to think,' I replied. "'I am as much in the dark as you are. All I know is that Kay himself is all right.' "'By the way, of course the police have been informed of the robbery.' "'Not yet,' answered Mrs. Fortescue. "'Frank did not know himself that he had been robbed "'until after the police were gone.' "'Then this must be done immediately,' I cried. "'The delay is most unfortunate. "'I will give information at once. "'But first of all, I must get an exact description of the jewels from K. I "'I hurried back to the room where he was lying on the sofa. "'You must give me a description of Lady Southborough's jewels,' I said. "'Of course,' he answered.' I took out my notebook and wrote from his dictation. One large brilliant and sapphire cross, a pin made in the form of a crescent set with five very large brilliants, a pair of bracelets composed of turquoises and brilliants, and a diamond necklace with a cluster of pink pearls in the centre. These, I think, were all, continued Kay. They were in a tin, despatch box and worth, I believe, fifteen thousand pounds. Thank you, I answered. I will go to Scotland Yard immediately. Keep quiet here. "'I will see you the first thing in the morning.' "'I hurriedly took my leave "'and drove to Scotland Yard "'to give the required information. "'It was not until I was once more driving home "'at nearly three o'clock "'that I began to think quietly over the matter, "'and then my mind suddenly flew to Miss Cusack. "'Here was the very case for this extraordinary woman. "'Her advice in the present state of things "'would be little short of invaluable. "'I determined to go see her "'the first thing in the morning. "'On reaching home I had a few hours sleep.' and breakfasting early, reached Miss Cusack's house at nine o'clock. She saw me at once in her library. I want your help badly in a most distressing and mysterious affair, I said at once. Her eyes brightened. What is it? she asked. I proceeded to give her in detail an account of the previous night's occurrence. She sat perfectly still and made no observation until I had finished speaking. This is great luck, she said then. Luck? I cannot see much luck about it i do not understand you i said perhaps not yet it is luck i know something already of this matter of course she continued i know nothing with regard to this individual case but cases of a similar nature have lately taken place on the continent and i have little doubt that they are the work of the same gang or the same individual the fact is they have been puzzling the paris prefect of police for months mr K will lose his post as private secretary to lord southborough if any suspicion rests upon him it must be our business to clear him and bring the thieves to justice no easy matter i can assure you this case however freshens the scent of the trail which i have already alluded to and i may as well say plainly that i am languishing for something to do as she said the last words hope sprang within me i knew enough of miss cusack to feel certain that the mystery would now be cleared up leave me now dr lonsdale she said quickly you shall hear from me as soon as i find anything out some days passed without anything fresh occurring on the evening of the third day i had a brief note from k miss cusack was right lord southborough had informed him that he would dispense with his services poor fellow i thought things are indeed going badly for him on the following morning rather to my surprise miss fortescue called to see me she came ostensibly as a patient and was shown into my consulting room are you ill i said the moment i saw her "'If so, I shall be glad to go into your case. "'But otherwise—' "'Oh, I know what you would say,' she interrupted. "'And I am not ill. "'That is, in body. "'But have you never ministered to a mind diseased, Dr. Lonsdale?' "'I am afraid that is scarcely my province,' I answered. "'I looked at her earnestly as I spoke. "'On the two last occasions when I had seen her, "'I had scarcely time to notice her personal appearance. "'But now I saw that her face bore considerable claims to great beauty. "'It was also the sort of face—' that interests me immensely, being full of vivacity and charm, the features good, the eyes bright, the lips kindly. That girl will make a good wife to the man who wins her, I said to myself, and I sighed with a fresh access of pity for poor Kay. I know Frank has written to you, she said, interrupting my thoughts. Everything is too dark, too dreadful. Lord Southborough has requested him to resign his post. Beyond doubt he suspects him. His prospects are ruined, what is to be done?' "'We must clear him,' I said, and as I spoke I gave an impatient movement. "'What was the matter with Miss Cusack? Why had she not written? Three or four days had passed since I had seen her, and in the interval I had had no line, no telegram, nothing. As a rule she was very quick in all her movements. Her mind, on occasions like the present, seemed to work like a flash. I saw that Miss Fortescue was gazing at me with impatience. "'When you say you will clear him,' "'Why do you not set about it?' she asked. "'I have taken steps,' I replied. "'I am afraid this is a case for patience.' "'Patience,' she answered with a sigh, "'and all the time he, poor fellow, is going under. "'This terrible trouble is weighing on his mind. "'He is the best fellow in the world. "'But who can stand up against suspicion?' "'While you do not share in those suspicions,' I answered, "'Kay has no cause to lose his faith.' "'I share in them?' she exclaimed i would rather cut off my right hand some scoundrels are at the bottom of this oh dr lonsdale do something and let me help you i shall lose my senses if there is nothing for me to do i am already asking a woman to help me i said slowly although i have not mentioned her name a woman but no other woman ought to help frank but me i smiled do not be impatient i said and you have no cause to be jealous The lady to whom I refer has one of the most acute detective brains in the whole of London. Now I tell you what I will do. I will write her a note, and you shall take it to her. I believe she is working hard in the matter, but in a case like this there is not a moment to lose. Oh, how good you are, said the girl. Having directed the letter, I handed it to Miss Fortescue. During the rest of my day's busy work, I often wondered what sort of interview Violet Fortescue and Miss Cusack had had the day itself passed however and many days followed in its train and i heard nothing fresh it was not until the following wednesday week that i received a telegram from miss cusack it was worded as follows be at home at five o'clock this evening we'll call to see you my heart leapt as i read the words at five o'clock to the minute miss cusack was shown into my consulting-room why did you send that girl to me was her first remark i hope nothing disastrous has followed her visit i replied Only to me, she said, panting a little. Was I not enthusiastic enough before, completely taken out of myself, worried to the last degree? And she came, poor little thing, with her passion and her agony and drove me to extremities. But I have learned something at last, and of value. As Miss Cusack spoke, I looked at her attentively and noticed with concern the change in her looks. She had lost flesh, and her eyes were too bright and large. With her usual intuition, she observed my glance. "'I am not well, and I don't wonder,' she said. "'I have not slept for three nights. "'It is the girl's fault. "'She has set the old desire going to the point of madness. "'I am on wires just now.' "'Her white fingers locked and unlocked themselves in her lap "'with a strange and nervous automatism that was painful to witness. "'At any rate,' she said after a pause, which I did not interrupt, "'I have been wearing myself out to some purpose. "'Have you found the thieves?' "'Not yet. "'But please listen.' I have discovered a good deal, though not all. In the first place, there is only one thief. I have seen him, and he has escaped me. His cunning is beyond words. He evidently knew of Mr. K.'s strange position, and doubtless followed him from Paris. An empty bottle, such as is used for chloroform, has been found beside the line, half an hour's ride from Dover, a nasty piece of evidence against Mr. K. This bottle was, beyond doubt, put there by the man to whom I allude. Oddly enough, he is a very remarkable-looking man, a bad thing for his own safety. What is his name? I asked. He goes by many aliases. When I came across him a few days ago, he was dressed as a country clergyman and had the name the Reverend John Wilberforce painted on his luggage. I have looked in the clerical directory and see that there is such a man. He is the rector of a small living in Yorkshire. I went down there yesterday and saw him. You went to Yorkshire? I exclaimed. She nodded the reverend john wilberforce is small stout and red-haired she continued now the man who went under his name is slightly above the middle height clean-shaven has hollow cheeks bushy eyebrows prominent ears and most strange of all a false nose this nose is cleverly made and doubtless constantly changed but it did not escape me it is kept in its place with spectacles please remember that description dr lonsdale i tell you on my solemn word of honour that until we find that man, poor Mr. K. will never lift up his head again, and that pretty girl will have no happiness. More than a month passed away. Miss Cusack had no fresh news of any sort to impart to me. I began to doubt whether Frank K. would ever be cleared, when on a certain wintry afternoon I found myself traveling up to Waterloo from Bournemouth. When I entered the carriage I noticed seated at the further end a man who was enveloped in a long ulster with a turned-up collar beyond a casual glance i paid no further attention to him by degrees however as we sped northward i found myself regarding him with more and more interest his was a clean-shaven face and from the first i thought there was something strange about it which i could not define was it the spectacles suddenly i started the man had a false nose beautifully made though it was the junction of the composition with the skin at the edge of the nasal bones was just perceptible in a flash Miss Cusack's description of the man so long wanted struck me. It tallied to an extraordinary degree. Bushy eyebrows, hollow cheeks, prominent ears, and more than anything, the nose. The man was no longer clad as a clergyman, but in the ordinary dress of an English gentleman. He continued quietly to read his paper, and took not the least notice of me. I leant back in my seat. I felt the blood leave my face. Could this be the man we were looking for? The scoundrel who had ruined my poor friend, who had broken the heart of the girl that friend loved? I instantly made up my mind to follow him. There was no other course. On arriving at Waterloo, the man with the false nose immediately entered a hansom. I took another and desired the driver to follow the first hansom. This he did, and at half past eight the two hansoms entered Paddington side by side. I paid my fare and went up to the booking office. The stranger was before me. I heard him ask for a first single to Bristol. My blood was up, and now I had started on my mad mission, I felt that I must see it through. I also took a first-class ticket to Bristol. The 850 Express was in the station. Just for a few moments I lost sight of the man and walked rapidly down the platform. But the next instant I caught sight of him settling himself in a first-class carriage, on the window of which was pasted a slip of paper reserved. I further noticed that there was another reserved carriage a little way down the platform. I immediately entered the carriage between the two reserved ones. It had one other occupant, an old gentleman who was evidently preparing himself for a long night's journey. We started punctually, and soon cleared the suburbs, and began to rush westwards through the night. On and on we sped. At Swindon I observed to my satisfaction that the stranger did not leave his carriage. I glanced in and saw that he was quietly reading in a corner seat. The night happened to be intensely cold, and all the carriage windows were, of course, up. Once more we started for a run of three-quarters of an hour before reaching Bristol. It must have been just after passing Chippenham, for I remember the lights of a biggish station had just flashed by, and my fellow traveller was sound asleep in his corner, when suddenly something moving outside the closed window attracted my attention. I started and turned. I had obtained but the most fleeting glance, yet it was long enough for me to see the figure of a man on the footboard, and an arm swing past, reaching to one of the brass brackets outside the other reserved carriage. I sprang to my feet instantly, opened the window, and looked out. All was darkness. Then, with an impulsiveness that knew no consideration of consequences, I opened the carriage door, and also stepped down to the footboard. I began immediately working my way in the direction in which the figure had gone. I knew now that I was right, but what awful event might be in progress I had not the slightest idea. I had not far to go. The door of the carriage, also marked reserved, was open, and was swinging to and fro as we whirled along. As I reached it I saw in the doorway the figure of the man I was following. His back was turned to me, but the next instant he flashed round swiftly, The devilish expression on his face I shall not soon forget. There was a whistle from the engine, and we plunged into the box tunnel. I had just time to realize my hideous danger, for I was hanging on by one hand to the rail, preparatory to swinging myself into the carriage, when he saw me, dashed at me with arms outstretched, and tried to hurl me back onto the lines. There was one terrific blow that almost numbed my arm, but, swinging as I was, my body, instead of receiving the full shock of the impact, yielded to it. I swung slowly back, as with a shriek the man himself, losing his balance, plunged headfirst past me into the darkness. The next moment I was safely in the carriage and had wrenched back the communication with the guard. Upon the floor lay a well-dressed man, apparently lifeless. His lips were blue and his eyes closed. I tried to raise him, I now noticed that the air of the carriage, though cold, felt very close and stuffy. In five minutes, the train was at a standstill, and the guard, with a horror stricken face, was at the door. I explained everything to him, that is, as far as I was able. To search the carriage for whatever devilish agent had caused the insensibility of the man was the work of a moment, and then it was that the stunning truth came to light. Upon the floor beneath the seat was a small white substance which for the moment I thought was merely a lump of chalk, but as I touched it my fingers experienced a feeling as if they were burned with some powerful corrosive. I knew then what it was, and I also knew its effect. It was a piece of solid gas, solid carbon dioxide, deadly and impossible to detect by reason of its having no smell. I now perceived how easily the whole plot could be carried out. It was only necessary to throw the carbon into the carriage beneath the seat just before the train started. It would then gradually volatilize, fill the carriage with a poisonous gas, and render the occupant, if the windows were closed as they would be on such a night, as insensible as the Chinese are in the fumes of their opium pipes. The whole thing would be almost impossible of detection, for the very agent itself would disappear into invisible gas, leaving no trace behind. Yes, here lay the mystery the rush of fresh air when the villain burst open the door rendered the gas in the carriage sufficiently diluted for him to effect his purpose but not enough to awaken the sleeper the fell design was easily accounted for in this case in a very short time the victim recovered consciousness he gave a brief account of himself he was he said the junior partner in a well-known firm of numismatists and was taking a quantity of rare and valuable gold coins to a gentleman in Bristol. These coins were worth not less than a thousand pounds. Early the next morning the body of the man with the false nose was discovered frightfully mutilated in the box tunnel. A notebook was found in his pocket, which the police immediately searched. One or two addresses were in it, and after a great deal of trouble on their part, evidence was forthcoming which abundantly proved That this man was the very one who had stolen Lady Southborough's jewels and had, by the strange and awful means which I had discovered, rendered poor Kay insensible. Those jewels were, alas, never recovered, but otherwise what was wrong was put right. Lord Southborough, seeing that Kay was abundantly vindicated, was full of compunction for his own suspicions. He not only offered him once more the post of secretary, but also a considerable increase of salary. Thus Violet and he were enabled to marry. End of A Terrible Railway Ride by L. T. Mead and Robert Eustace